Well, before we jump into the study then, why don't you pray with me one more time. Father, this is your study, and so, God, I pray that that you'd strip me away, Father, and that your word would go out, and that, Father, anything that, uh, that I have to say, Father, that it would fall on deaf ears, that as we get into your word, that that's what would minister to our hearts is your word. Father, I pray that you be here in this place. Really speak to our lives, Lord. We're here to hear from you and to get closer to you. So be in this place. In your precious son's name, amen. Well, if you have not been reading along for some reason through, for the past seven days and you have no idea what's going on in Exodus up to chapter eight, I'm going to give my weekly recap of what's gone on in the last week. So it's like on a, on a TV show, you know, you, you miss a week or whatever, and it's like, what you missed last time on 24? Well, what you missed last time in Exodus is last week we sort of went over the introduction at the Agape Feast. So if you weren't at the Agape Feast, you missed the introduction to Exodus. So I'll do a quick recap of the intro to Exodus for you people who don't come to our Agape Feast. Shame on you. No, I'm just kidding. But Exodus was written by Moses. Uh, it's part of the Pentateuch, which is the first five, cha- uh, first five books pardon me, of the Bible. They were all written by Moses. It's called the Pentateuch, also referred to sometimes as the... To- no. <laughs> Close. <laughs> the law. The Torah is... Uh, no, it is the Torah. My bad. I'm sorry I lied. The Torah or the law. Forgive me. Pardon me, family. So the Torah, the Pentateuch, or the law. My bad. I was thinking another phrase. It's my bad. It's Tuesday, right? Anyway, uh, these first five books were written by Moses. Uh, we just got done studying the book of Genesis. Genesis was the book of beginnings, and uh, in it we studied two uh, main themes. The first was God revealing his character or his nature through creation. And the second was God revealing his nature through his special people or his called people. In Exodus, we're also going to be looking at two themes. The first one should be really easy for us to see. And the second one, we're going to do a little bit of studying and digging deeper to get it. And the first theme is is that God orchestrates everything to save a special people for his glory. God orchestrates everything to save a special people for his glory. The second thing that we're going to be looking at and that we're going to be looking at today is that the theme of Exodus is being separated from the world. It's a separation. You see, God has called us to, yeah, be in the world, but to not be of the world as Christians. And in the book of Exodus, Egypt is a type or a picture of the world. And the things that Egypt does are a type or a picture of, this, of sin. And Israel is a type or picture of us as Christians. And so in the same way, the book of Exodus is about us as Christians, God orchestrating everything to save a special or elect or called people, as Romans 9 says, to save us for his glory. And so that's what we're going to be looking at in Exodus. So Exodus Chapters 1 through 7, if you haven't been reading along, this is what you missed. In Exodus 1, our good friend Joseph dies. Bummer. Joseph dies along with all of his brothers, and quite a few centuries pass. There's not a specific timeline that happens in 
uh, Exodus chapter 1. We don't know exactly how much time took place, but it was enough time that a new pharaoh has risen up. And this pharaoh has no knowledge of Joseph or his brothers. All he knows is that there's a ton of these Hebrew people in the land of Egypt, and they're just multiplying. They're multiplying and multiplying and multiplying, and this pharaoh realizes that these people are a threat to the Egyptian people. They could at any moment raise up and overthrow them because they're no longer a minority. They're becoming a a real substantial part of the population of Egypt. And so this pharaoh decides, well, I know what I'm going to do. I'm just going to oppress these Hebrews and put them into forced labor and, and forced labor, and they'll just become my slaves. That way they'll never think that they could rise up and overthrow me and my people. And so he does that, and for uh, quite a few years, Egypt Egypt, uh, becomes the taskmasters or slave owners of the Hebrew people. Exodus chapter 2, this guy Moses is born. For safety's sake and just because it's fun, I'm going to call the guy Mo for most of the book of Exodus. So if you hear me talk about Mo, that's Moses. You know how much I mix up names, and so Mo is just easier for me not to mix up because there's no other people even closely related to Mo in the Bible. But Moses is born. And Pharaoh, being worried about this uprising of the Hebrew people, passes an edict to the midwives of the Hebrew people to kill any male child that's born to the Hebrew people. Well, these midwives fear God, so they refuse to do anything like that. And so Pharaoh creates a new edict that any male Hebrew child that's born is to be thrown into the Nile River, but the, the girls may survive. The whole point of this is that, hey, if, if we don't have men to continue populating Israel won't grow as a nation. They couldn't overthrow us. And so we're going to kill all the male children. Then Moses is born. And Moses' mother can't stand the thought of her baby boy being murdered. And so what does she do? She creates a little boat, in a sense, and puts baby Mo in the boat and uh, puts him in the Nile River among the reeds. Who finds baby Moses? Of all people... The daughter of Pharaoh goes down into the Nile River to bathe, and there's this little baby among the reeds. Well, Moses' sister, Miriam, is only a short distance away. She was watching to see what would happen to her little brother. And when Pharaoh's daughter finds baby Moses and takes compassion on him, Miriam runs up and says, Hey, do you want me to go get one of the Hebrew uh, nurses to nurse this child? And Pharaoh's daughter says, well, sounds good to me. And so Miriam runs off and gets Moses' mother. And Moses' mother nurses Moses until he's weaned. And then Pharaoh's daughter takes Moses as her son and names him Moses. uh, Because she said, "I, I drew him out of the water. And Moses in Hebrew means drawn out, drawn out. And so she names him Moses. And for 40 years... Moses lives in Egypt as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So sort of like Pharaoh's adopted grandson. We don't have any reason to believe, by the way, that their family life was anything quite so normal as depicted in The Prince of Egypt. DreamWorks made a really cool, fun movie, but it probably wasn't quite so nuclear of a family with... Moses and Ramses, you know, just always like thinking that they're both Egyptian and competing against each other and being rivals and mom and and dad and grandpa. It, It probably didn't look anything like that. 
Probably didn't look anything like that. Why? Well, because we know that Moses knew that he was a Hebrew. Because we see there in Exodus chapter 2 that Moses sees one of his own kinsmen, a Hebrew, being beaten by, a, by an Egyptian. And uh, so what does Moses do? He goes up and kills him. He offs this Egyptian. Uh, sort of looks around. Nobody's looking. He goes, kills him, and buries him in the sand. Well, this murder ends up being found out, and so Moses, Moses flees. He takes off, and he books it to the Midianite desert. And there he spends the next 40 years of his life as a shepherd in Midian. While he's there, he marries uh, a woman named Zipporah, has a couple of beautiful kids. And while he's out just shepherding his, his flock, he encounters something very, very strange in Exodus chapter 3. A bush that's on fire, but it's not being consumed. And so Moses is like, wow, that's pretty cool. So he walks over to see what's up with this burning bush. And all of a sudden, this bush calls out his name, Moses, Moses. Well, I'm sure, you know, when Moses retold this story for the next few years, people thought Moses was smoking the burning bush, but he wasn't. This was God coming down and miraculously meeting Moses to call him out back to Egypt to save his people. God talks with Moses and tells him, hey, I've heard what's going on in Egypt. I've heard my people's cry. I know that they're enslaved. I know they're suffering. And I want to point out a specific passage here in Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 7. The Lord says to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cries because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen their oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come. And I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses is called by God to a very specific task. To go in and to talk to Pharaoh and to save God's children out of slavery and out of bondage. And take them into the promised land. In the same way, family, we were once enslaved to sin. We were slaves to sin and slaves to this world. But God has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light so that we could be reconciled to him, be children of God once again, and into his promised land, the kingdom of God. There's something so crucial and so important, though, that I want to point out in this passage And that's at the end of verse 7. God says to Moses, I've seen what's going on. I've heard their oppression. Their prayers have reached me. And God says, I know their sufferings. I know their sufferings. Now, every time I've read this, it's always just sort of rung in my ears that God knows what's going on. And, And I've even preached that from this microphone. Guys, God knows what's going on in your lives. He knows you're suffering. Even when you feel like God isn't there, he's 
he knows what's happening. But there was something as I was studying today that stuck out to me about this phrase, and that's the word know. God says, I know their sufferings. This word know in the Hebrew is yada, yada, and basically with all the tenses and, and uh, modifiers and with, with all the things about this word in the Hebrew, this word is very special and very unique in that it's the same word in Hebrew that's used to say Adam knew his wife Eve and begat Cain. Or Jacob knew Rachel. Jacob knew Leah. What I'm trying to say is this is a very intimate knowledge. There's other words in Hebrew that can describe a head knowledge or an understanding or to be acquainted with. But this word no, yada, is an intimate knowledge. God's saying, I, I not only know about their sufferings, I know their sufferings. I am intimately aware of what they're going through. I'm a part of their sufferings. And in a sense, God is saying, I've experienced their suffering. Isaiah 53 tells us that surely he, prophesying about Jesus, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He knows intimately our suffering. We don't serve and follow a God who is so removed from us that he just looks down and, oh yeah, I know what's going on. I I see what's happening. It's so much more intimate and it's so much more special than that. God knows intimately our suffering like a husband knows a wife. He knows what you're going through, family. Not just in his, in his head or in his mind, but he feels the pain that you're feeling. And so God knowing and experiencing the pain that Egypt or that Israel was going through in Egypt has sent Moses down to save his people. Just as God knowing and experiencing the pain that we feel through sin, through death, through separation from God, sent his son down to become sin. That we might become the righteousness of God, that we could be reconciled to him. That we could be made right with God and ultimately, as Romans tells us, that we could be made free from the bondage to sin that we could be made free from the bondage to sin. Well, Moses does go. After some complaining and some excuses, he finally goes down. He obeys the voice of God and goes to Egypt, meets his brother Aaron, and God commands both of them to appear before Pharaoh and to say the ever-so-famous phrase, let my people go. Let my people go. Well, Pharaoh says, who's God? Who's this Lord that you're talking about? I don't know the Lord. I'm not going to listen to him. I'm not going to obey this Lord that you're talking about. Forget about it. In fact, if your people are so concerned about going and worshiping their God, well, they apparently have too much time on their hands, so I'm going to make work harder for them. And that's exactly what Pharaoh does. Well, the people who were once all on board with this whole salvific plan get a little bummed out 
They get pretty ticked at Moses. Moses, what do you think you're doing coming in here and making things harder on us? The people complain to Moses. Moses hears about it and he complains to God. He runs to the Lord with it and he says, God, what, what are you doing? The, the, the people, the, it's only been made harder on them. You haven't delivered them at all. And God says, just go back to Pharaoh. I, to, I, I knew this was going to happen. I told you that Pharaoh was going to continually harden his heart against what you'd say, but that I'll deliver you anyway. And so he tells Moses, go back to Pharaoh. And so he does. And, and he, he tells Pharaoh, Pharaoh, p- let my people go, or God is going to smite you with plagues. Pharaoh doesn't listen. He laughs it off. And so God commands Moses to tell Aaron to stretch his staff over the Nile River, and it becomes struck. The entire Nile River becomes blood, and all the animals in it die. Pharaoh calls his magicians, hey, can you repeat this trick? And through the power of, of sleight of hand and, and probably more likely Satan, they duplicate this miracle and they turn water into blood. And so Pharaoh laughs it off and hardens his heart and says, forget about it. I'm not going to let your people go. I'm not going to let my free slaves just go. Forget about it. I am not going to agree to this unconditional surrender of the Hebrew people to this God I don't have any respect for. I don't believe in. I don't know this God. Seven days go by with the Nile River struck as blood. And now we pick up in chapter 8. Exodus chapter 8, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. I want to pause right there, just very briefly, to point out What's the point? What's the purpose? Why is God so obsessed with the Hebrew people being taken out of the land of Egypt? Here's what it is. God set aside Israel, the descendants of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, to be for his glory and to worship him. When they're in Egypt and they're in slavery, they they can't worship God. When they're slaves to Egypt, when they're slaves, in a sense, to the world, they can't worship God. And so they have to be separated. They have to be set apart from the land and the people of Egypt. Why? So that they can worship me, God says. Again, as I said before, and as we're going to continue to see through this book. Egypt is a type of the world. And so family, so often we get asked the question, well, what's, what's so important about sanctification? Why is everyone so big on being not of this world? I mean, what's the big deal? Why can't I be, why can't I look like the world? Why can't I talk like the world? Why can't I act like the world? Why can't I be in this world? Because here's the thing, family, when you're in this world, when you're surrounded by and serve the gods of this world, the beer god, the success god, the money god, the sex god, the skin god, right? When you serve all these gods and you're in this world, it becomes impossible for you to truly worship 
God. It becomes impossible for you to truly worship God when you fill your life with the things of this world. And so God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Why? So that they can worship me. So they can worship me. We'll continue reading. Verse 3. Sorry, verse 2. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and your people and all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals and over the pools and make frogs come upon the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. We'll pause right there. Imagine the scene. Everything's all fine and dandy, and Moses comes up to Pharaoh and says, Okay, listen, pal. I, I turned the Nile to blood. I cut off your life supply in a sense. Understand the Nile was not only Egypt's source of drinking water, not only their source of food with the fish that were in the Nile, but also their source of uh, like commerce. The Nile was where all commerce happened because they could easily travel up and down the Nile in boats and trade and and whatnot. Moses says, I've already cut off your main lifeline, okay? But if you don't let my people go, if you don't let God's people go and and release them to go worship and serve God, I'm going to make frogs come in the land. Pharaoh Pharaoh's words are not recorded as to what he replied to Moses. But we get the picture. Pharaoh must have said something along the lines of no. And so what happens? Aaron stretches out his staff over the waters and frogs come up everywhere. Hundreds upon thousands upon hundreds of thousands of of frogs literally cover the land of Egypt. I imagine, especially for kids, it probably would have been cool for like the first day. You know, it's like there's frogs everywhere and oh, this is so fun, you know. You know, and and their moms are opening up the, you know, the the pot to go make bread and she's screaming because there's frogs in the the bread and in the, the ovens. There's frogs just everywhere. And I imagine it was pretty funny for kids for maybe the first day. But imagine the nuisance of constantly having frogs crawling all over you, all over your house, in every nook and cranny of everything that you own, everywhere. Imagine trying to sleep at night with the, with the sound of hundreds upon thousands of probably millions of frogs croaking. This was such a nuisance to the people of Egypt. But it was even more of a nuisance to the people of Egypt because they were frogs. I mean, certainly we have to ask the question, well, why did God send frogs? Why wasn't it anything else? You know, why not bats? Bats are pretty freaky. You know, I don't like bats. Well, why didn't God send bats? Well, here's the thing about frogs. Frogs in the land of Egypt were sacred. They were sacred. You couldn't kill frogs. It's sort of like cows in India today. 
I'm sure you've heard stories or seen pictures of a cow like sitting in the road and nobody can go near the cow because the cow is sacred. It's like grandpa reincarnated. They can't kill a cow because their God, in a sense, is a cow. And so all cows on earth are sacred. You can't kill them. The same thing was true of Egypt for frogs. You see, they had a God who I'm going to mispronounce this God's name and I don't really care, but it was something along the lines of Hakta. And this God Hakta was, had the head of a frog. And so all frogs in the land of Egypt were sacred. You couldn't kill a frog. So here's Pharaoh in his bedroom, goes to lay down to sleep and jumps out of bed because he hears something croaking underneath his pillow. He likely has his entire staff on amphibious watch ready to to shoo away any frogs. Why? Because you can't kill them. There's nothing that Egypt could do about the frogs. Nothing they could possibly do. On top of that, not only were frogs impossible for the Egyptians to get rid of, but like I said, one of their deities, Hakta, was a frog. And so this is God, in a sense, slapping this Egyptian god Hakta in the face. Why? Hakta's job as a deity was to sort of monitor the population of frogs and not let them get too numerous. And so God is in effect telling the Egyptian people, hey, your god Hakta can't do anything about this. I'm going to make, I'm going to make frog. There's going to be so many frogs. They're going to be sitting on top of each other. They're going to be all over you. They're going to be jumping all over you. They're going to be all in your bed. They're going to be everywhere. And your God can't do anything about it. Can't do anything about it. More than that, more than that, what God was saying was not only slapping this Egyptian God, lowercase g, God, Hakta in the face. But God was doing something that he often does in our lives today. We do the same thing. We worship other gods. Like I said, we worship the, the money God, right? And so God says, oh, you, you want to worship the money God, huh? Instead of me, and, hey, okay. I'll give you money. I'll give you so much money, it's coming out of your ears. And what are you going to end up? You're going to end up a lonely old man with all kinds of money with a big hole in your heart because you have no family, you have no friends because they're all gone because you were either too greedy or too self-absorbed in your own success to spend any time on your family. God says, oh, okay, you... you you want to worship the, the beer god, you know, party on. That, that's fine. Go worship the beer god. I'm going to give you more alcohol than you, can, than you know what to do with. And what are you going to end up with? Alcoholism. You're going to end up an alcoholic. And you're going to loathe the very thing that you worship. Understand, family, when we worship any other god, God gives us what we worship. When we worship any other God, God gives us what we worship. Why? 
Well, so you can see the vanity and the foolishness and the pointlessness of that God and how it can never satisfy, it can never fulfill. It's never what you thought it was. It's never what you thought it was. When you get too much, you know, the phrase has been said, too much of anything is a bad thing. Too much honey makes you sick. You know, too much, like I said, alcohol, you, you end up puking your guts out. Too much of anything is a bad thing. But I'll tell you this, family, too much of God is never a bad thing. Too much of spending time with Jesus is never a bad thing. He's the only thing in this life that the more you invest in, the more you get out of. Okay? And when you worship anything other than God, God gives you exactly what you worship. And that's what was happening with the people of Egypt. They worshipped frogs. They worshipped hakta. And what did they end up with? Exactly what they worshipped. Frogs up the wazoo. More frogs than they could possibly imagine. And it was not only annoying. It was not only a nuisance. It was not only gross. But it was unlivable. They couldn't live like that. They couldn't live like that. And so what does Pharaoh do? He calls the magicians to him. He, he calls his magicians because, hey, you know, they, they did exactly the same thing, you know, at the Nile, and they turned, you know, water to blood. So he calls his magicians in verse 7. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come upon the land of Egypt. I love that. What did Pharaoh really want? He wanted the frogs gone. He wanted the frogs gone. And so the magicians come up and, oh yeah, we could do that too. And they made frogs come upon the land of Egypt. That's great. We already had frogs. Family, when we go, and not only when we worship other gods, does God give us exactly what we worship, but when we go to any other solution other than God, all we end up is more of the same old stuff. More of the same old problems. You go to a self-help book, and what do you come up with? Well, I already knew that. I already knew how to get problems in my life. Now I need to know how to get rid of these problems in my life. You go to uh, a guru who's going to make your life better, and, and, and they give you a lot of clever maxims and just snap this rubber band every time you feel like doing that thing, and it doesn't work out. Or you end up with one addiction to replace another. When you worship anything other than God, you get, ex- you get exactly that. God gives you what you worship. And when you go to any other solution other than God, all you get is more of the same old stuff, more of the same old problems. So Pharaoh calls the magicians to himself, his self-help gurus in a sense. He says, what are you going to do about this? And they, all they do is make more frogs. All they do is make more problems, more frogs. And so finally... Pharaoh, in an act of desperation, verse 8, Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, plead with the Lord. I want to pause right there. Pharaoh says, plead with the Lord. See, a couple chapters ago, Pharaoh told Moses, I don't know the Lord. I don't know who this Lord is, this God of yours. Why why am I going to respect him? Pharaoh's learned God's name. Pharaoh's learned God's name. Why is this important? He realizes God's power. He realizes God's power. 
He's not mocking Moses and Aaron anymore. He says to them, pray to plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people. And I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, this is so key family. Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and from your house and be left only in the Nile. Pharaoh comes to Moses. Moses, please, you, you got to pray for me, man. You got to pray for me that the frogs would go away. I realize that the Lord is the only one who can get these things gone. Okay. All these frogs in my life. I want them all to croak. Moses says, just say when. Just say when, because when I go pray, they're going to be gone. Because that's how powerful my God is. You say when, and the frogs will be gone. And look at Pharaoh's response. Tomorrow. And he said, tomorrow. Here's the thing, family. Any sensible one of us reading this is probably thinking, tomorrow? Are you kidding me? Get rid of them now, like five minutes ago, like yesterday. Get rid of these things. Say when? How about right now? Let the frogs all be gone. But Pharaoh says, Mo, just give me one more night with the frogs. Just give me one more night. Family, when, when someone goes and they go and, oh, I'm just, I'm just going to try pot once. It's not that big a deal. I'm just going to try it, you know? I, I mean, I'm not going to become a stoner, you know, and I'm definitely not going to become some drug addict. You know, I'm just, I'm just going to do a little bit. Well, what's a little bit going to hurt me? That person never picked up that, that bong or, or that marijuana and, and said, oh, you know, I, I'm going to become a, a drug addict now. No, they said, ah, oh, this, this isn't going to be that big a deal. A little bit won't hurt me. They start to worship that God, the high God. And when we worship other gods, family, what does God give us? What we worship. (laughs) Remember, when I do this sweeping motion, it's like, I want to hear back. Because otherwise I feel like we're all falling asleep here. (laughs) Let me try again. When, When we worship anything other than God, what does God give us? what we worship. Exactly. When we worship anything other than God, that's exactly what God gives us, what we worship. And that person becomes, all of a sudden, now they they can't not be high. So they have to try and get high more often and more often and more often. And then pot doesn't do it anymore. They go to harder drugs and, and, and they end up becoming a drug addict. Okay, that person becomes a total druggie and they realize that they have a problem, right? Someone comes up to him, dude, you totally have a problem. You're an addict. I know, man, I know. Okay, well, I'm going to clean my life up tomorrow. That person says, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm totally addicted to pornography, but I'm going to stop after this one more time. You know what? I I can't go out. I can't party anymore. I can't do this. It's just, it's messing with my life. It's separating me from God. I'm not going to party anymore after this last one. Give me just one more night with the frogs. It's not that bad. 
And so Pharaoh, just like, just like the world, and just like us when we're completely caught and trapped in sin, we're up to our eyeballs in frogs. And, and God comes down and says, just say the word. Say the word and it's gone. When do you want this gone? Tomorrow. Tomorrow. I'll deal with this addiction tomorrow. I'll deal with this sin in my life tomorrow. Not today. Today, you know, it's just one last time. Tomorrow. Family, let's not make this mistake that Pharaoh made. When something is wrong in our lives, when something is separating us from God, because family, understand that's exactly what sin is. It separates us from God. You know, God says, it's not that my ears dull that I can't hear you or my hand is short that I can't reach you, but your sin has made a separation between me and you. And that's what Jesus died on the cross for, was to break down that wall between us and God. But when we sin, we just put another brick back on in that wall. We start building it back up. Family, when, when we find ourselves continually putting bricks back in a wall that Jesus died to break down. We can't say, well, I'm going to stop building this wall tomorrow. Stop now. Stop now. We're told in Romans that, that we've become now no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. We're freed from our bondage to sin. And Jesus says, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. You don't have to keep on sinning. You don't, if you are a Christian, if you've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, if you've confessed with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you're free from sin. You don't have to go on sinning. So stop. Stop. Now I understand it's a little bit harder than all that because we want that sin, right? Just like Pharaoh, we say tomorrow. But you're not a slave to sin anymore, family. And so stop saying tomorrow I'm going to deal with this. Tomorrow I'm going to deal with this. Tomorrow I'm going to deal with this because you never will. Your heart, like Pharaoh's, will continue to become hardened and hardened and hardened. But Moses says, Pharaoh, just say when. Pharaoh says, tomorrow. Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord your God. The frog shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. Notice the power of prayer, family. Notice the power of prayer. I'm going to read that again. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he agreed with Pharaoh and the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So the frogs finally croaked, they piled them up, and all they're left with is a stinking mess, literally. And once Pharaoh sees that there's respite, or as the Hebrew puts it, 
Once Pharaoh sees that there's a little room or there's some breathing room, that he doesn't need God anymore. You remember Pharaoh turned to God. Mo, you got to pray for me, man. You got to get rid of the frogs. I've got all these frogs in my life. I don't know what to do. I'm up to my eyeballs in these frogs. Please pray for me. Moses says, okay, just say when. Say when that you want the frogs gone. Tomorrow, just give me one more night with the frogs. So Moses says, all right, whatever you want, man. And so he goes and he prays for the frogs to be gone and they all die. God kills all the frogs. They pile them up into one stinking mess. And Pharaoh realizes, hey, wait a minute, I'm okay now. I don't, I don't need God anymore. My life's not falling through anymore. I'm standing on my own two feet. I don't need God. Forget about it, Moses. The deal's off, all right? This is exactly what so many do. They cry out to God when their life is falling through. When they don't have a ledge to stand on, they cry out to God, God, please save me. If you let me live, I promise I'll give my whole life to you and, and commit all my money to charity and I'll, I'll do whatever you want, God. So what does God do? He says, all right, I'll save you. And they turn, forget that deal. I, I'm standing on my own two feet now. I don't need God anymore. This isn't how things are supposed to work with us, family. This is how the world does things. This is how Egypt does things, right? When they need God, they cry out to him. But as soon as they don't need God anymore, forget him. It's not how it's supposed to be. And if that's how we are in our own walks, there's something seriously, seriously wrong. If the only times we pray are when things are going wrong, you're looking a lot more like Egypt than you are Israel. If the only time you pray is when things are going horribly wrong, when the bottom has fallen out, when your parents are getting a divorce, when you're losing your job, when you're just stressed, when you're distressed, when cancer strikes, when a, a loved one is on their deathbed, when, when these are the only times that you cry out to God, you're looking a whole lot more like Egypt than you are Israel. You're looking a whole lot more like the world than you are God's child. See, Pharaoh, yeah, he knows God's name, right? Cry out to the Lord. Pray to God for me. He knows who God is, but he doesn't have a relationship with God. He doesn't have a relationship with him. Family, we were saved not to just go on with our lives how we want to live them, but we were saved to have a relationship with God, to be reconciled to Him, to be made right with Him, so that not only for eternity in heaven, but here on earth, we could have a relationship with Him. And if the only time you cry out to God is when you're in crisis mode, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. And I would encourage you to really examine yourself and see if you've really put your faith in Jesus Christ. Because as a Christian, we've been saved, as Jesus says in John 17, 3, that we may know God and Jesus Christ, whom he sent. That we could know him. Pharaoh doesn't know God. He knows who he is. And just like the world today, when 9-11 hits, everybody's praying to God. 
But when we're standing on our own two feet again, forget him. Forget him. Verse 16, Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your stick, your staff, and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand and with his staff, uh, stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All the land of the, all the dust of the earth became gnats in the land of Egypt. We'll pause right there. We're not 100% sure what kind of bugs these were. Mr. Schultz, the, uh, the creator of the famous comic strip Peanuts, before he, uh, before he ever got famous on Peanuts, he wrote a, a book, a funny little book called What's Buggin' Old Pharaoh? That's exactly what it, that's the question. You know, what was buggin' Pharaoh? We don't know exactly what bugs these were, uh, but most likely there's a couple of different translations of the Hebrew word. Most likely it's probably not gnats. It's probably something more like lice or mosquitoes. Lice or mosquitoes. Gnats would be really annoying, but I could deal with them. Mosquitoes, not so much. Not so much. Mosquitoes or even lice. Those are just, those are so, not only annoying, but they're biting. Not only are they annoying, but they are biting. Again, why gnats? Well, there was an Egyptian god named Gob, who was the land of the dust of the earth. And his job was to protect Egypt. They prayed to Gob to protect Egypt from like swarms of anything. He was the earth god and they they prayed to him to protect Egypt from swarms of anything. And so once again, we have a slap in an Egyptian god's face. Oh, you're going to pray to Gob to protect you from bugs? I'll just give you bugs. Pray to him now. Pray to him now. And so what does Pharaoh do? He gets his magicians. Okay, guys, you got to do something about all these mosquitoes. They are literally eating us alive. Okay, you have to do something about these bugs. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. This is the finger of God. Pharaoh's magicians are running a little scared because they can't do this. They said this is literally the finger of God pinching or pushing or poking us. This isn't some trick, Pharaoh. But Pharaoh once again hardens his heart and he would not listen to them. He wouldn't listen to them. We don't know how long there were these bugs in the land of Egypt. It doesn't give us a timeline, but I imagine it was quite a while. Quite a while. Verse 20, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to, uh, to the water. And say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. 
Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses, and the houses of Egypt shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses throughout all the land of Egypt. Uh, Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Have you ever been in a room that there's like one fly just buzzing around the room. It's a little bit distracting. You know, there's this little fly buzzing around. It, it, it's, it's just, you know, it's like, oh, you're, you're, you kind of know it's there, but whatever, you can go on with life. Have you ever been in a room that there were maybe four or five flies buzzing around? It's a nuisance, okay? These things are, are gross. Flies have disgusting habits. They're, they're gross looking. They crawl all over the place. They're I don't really like bugs. I don't know if any of you are like entomologists here or something like that, you know, that you're just, you love bugs. I hate bugs, okay? Bugs are terrible. Terrible creatures. And I, I don't really like flies. One, I can tolerate, but three or four, that's a real nuisance. But there was one time, uh, I was, this was a couple of years ago, I came down, uh, from my room and I, I walk into the kitchen and my mom's in there and she's swatting flies and for some god awful reason there was about 30 flies in our kitchen and I was freaking out this was one of the more disgusting moments of my life because there's flies everywhere they're flying all over the kitchen and you know the kitchen is where you make food you don't want flies there in the first place but as best we could tell uh, some fly had laid eggs in our windowsill, because they were sort of coming out from, like, the crack in the window. So we were freaking out, and oh my goodness, the, oh, the carnage (laughs) of killing all these flies, and we sweep them into the sink, and literally the sink was sort of, it wasn't filled, but it was, the bottom of the sink was covered with flies, and it was so disgusting, and it gives me the chills to this day. This is years later. I hate bugs, okay? I mean it. I really do. I hate bugs. These flies were everywhere, okay? Now imagine not just 30 flies, but so many flies that it covers the ground. Every time you step, they're just, they, they crunch and, you, and this sort of cloud of flies just flies up all the time. The entire, your entire house, everything is covered in flies. Now that's disgusting, okay? Disgusting. So disgusting. I can't, I'm not even going to think about it anymore. Moving on. Why did God send flies? Well, once again, there was an Egyptian God uh, that, that some of the Egyptians worshipped. And he'll seem very familiar to you. His name was Beelzebub. We've heard that name before, Beelzebub. Satan is sometimes called Beelzebub. And if you read the book, The Lord of the Flies, that's exactly what Beelzebub means. It means the Lord of the Flies. This was an Egyptian God. And some people actually worshipped Beelzebub. So here we have once again, God sort of smacking the people 
in the face and smacking this God in the face that's supposed to regulate and control the amount of flies and their duties and their jobs and saying, they don't have anything. I can control them. Beelzebub can't. Can't control the flies. They can't do anything about it. Who, who are you worshiping again? Beelzebub? Oh, yeah. Powerless compared to me. Powerless. And once again, what the people worshipped, God gave to them. When we worship anything other than God, what does God give us? What we worship. And so here we have, once again, the people worshiping Beelzebub, the Lord of the flies. And so what does God give them? More flies than they know what to do with. Flies that are coming out of their ears. But I love what God does here. All of these miracles, and that's exactly what they were. Miracles, these plagues. People have tried to explain away. Okay, you can watch the History Channel today and there will be explanations of how these plagues came to be. Oh, well, the Nile turned blood red because in its drought season right before the flood, you know, everything would die. There'd be all these organisms and and other scholars say, well, it was actually after the after the the great flood and there'd be all these organisms. The Nile would turn blood red. This would kill the fish. This would cause the frogs. They, They try and explain everything, all these plagues that happened. Okay. No one can explain how flies cover the land of Egypt, but the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel are, they're untouched. No one can explain that. Nobody. Nobody can explain that. There is no reasonable explanation why Egypt was covered in flies, and the land of Goshen, which is part of Egypt, but where Israel lived, was untouched. Untouched. This is so similar to the judgments that God pours out onto the world in the book of Revelation. The believers that are here, the tribulation saints that are here, are unaffected by many of these judgments that God pours out on the earth. They're unaffected because they've been sealed by God. In the same way, family, in the same way, God has set apart Israel to display his glory In saying that, look, this will tell you how powerful I am. You're going to be covered in flies, but Israel, who doesn't worship flies, they're they're not going to have anything. They're not going to have any flies in that land. Well, finally, once Pharaoh is up to his eyeballs in flies and, and can't do anything about it, Pharaoh calls Moses in verse 25, Moses and Aaron and said, go sacrifice to your God within the land. This is an important thing that's happening here, family. And if you've drifted off to sleep, wake back up because this is important. You don't want to miss this, I promise. Remember, Moses and Aaron come to Pharaoh and they say, let my people go that they may go and serve me. Pharaoh says, okay, I'll make you a deal. Worship God but stay here. Worship God, but stay here. And listen, family, the world tries to tell you the same thing today. Hey, be a Christian, but, you know, don't, you know, don't be, 
don't be crazy, you know, don't go like do something ridiculous. You know, you, you can be a Christian and like still live your life and, you know, climb the corporate ladder and do whatever you want, you know, with your girlfriend or boyfriend. And, you know, that's all fine and dandy. And, you know, I mean, if you get drunk once in a while, it's not that bad. You can still be a Christian. You can have your life and a little Jesus too. Go worship God, but but don't go anywhere. Stay right here. Stay in the world. Family, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. The world will try and tempt you and say, you don't have to, you don't have to do anything radical in your life to, to be a Christian, to worship God. But family, God has called us to be separated. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Sanctified literally means to be set apart, to be different than this world. The world says, be a Christian, but still be like us. Still live here in this world. Store up for yourselves treasures here on earth. But God says, no, leave this world to worship me. Don't look like everybody else. Don't act like everybody else. Don't do the same things that everyone else does. If you're going to follow after me, you have to leave Egypt and worship me. You have to leave Egypt and serve me. Moses responds to Pharaoh, unwavering. Moses says, it would not be right to do so. For the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, Pharaoh comes back with a counter offer, okay? Okay, that's fine. Hey, if you're going to go, if, if you can't, you know, be in the world and be a Christian, hey, okay, but if you're going to go, Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Plead for me. This is the sacrifice, listen, family, not the sacrifice, pardon me, but the compromise that more of us succumb to. We'll say to the world, you know what? No, I can't look like you. I I can't be like you and be a Christian. I need to be separate. I need to be sanctified. No, I I, I need to go to worship God. And so the the counteroffer comes back. Okay, okay, that's fine. Go. You you could go, but don't go too far. Hey, and, and while you're out there, pray for me, you know, pray for me. The world says, go be a Christian, but don't be radical. Be a Christian, but don't go on mission trips. Be a Christian, but don't buy into that whole, you know, if you give money to God, God will bless you. So don't, don't buy into that. You don't, you don't need to give God your money. He has enough money. Why would you tithe? That's what everyone else is doing. That church has enough money. Go, but, but don't go too far. Don't go off the deep end. That's fine. Go be a Christian, but, but don't give your life up to God in ministry. Still, you know, like have, have your, your job that you're like sort of climbing the corporate ladder because you're, you're, you're doing so well. You're doing so well. Keep climbing the corporate ladder and uh, be a Christian too. And hey, you know, when you go to church on Sundays, pray for me. I was watching this movie. It's a, it's a really rad movie. I encourage everyone to watch it. It's called To Save a Life. And uh, in it, the main character, um, you know, gives his life to Christ and he starts going to church 
And his dad calls him in. He's in high school still. His dad calls him in. And he says, so your mom's been telling me you've been, you went to church today. And the kid says, yeah. He said, that's the second time this week, isn't it? He's like, yeah, well, that was church. This is youth group. And the dad says, well, don't you think that's a little much? The kid sort of stands there. I don't, I don't know what you mean. He says, yeah, I, I'm okay with a little religion, but don't lose sight of your scholarship. I love that scene because that's exactly what's going on here. And that's exactly what's going on in our lives. Hey, the world says, hey, I'm okay with a little religion. I'm all right with a little religion, but don't lose sight of all the pursuits of the world. Don't lose sight of the pursuits of pleasure, of fame, of success, of fortune. Don't lose sight of, of all these things. Don't, just don't be radical, okay? Don't, don't be too crazy. Don't be too Christian. Don't be a Jesus freak, whatever you do. Because those people are worthless. Those people are so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good. Family, this is such an easy temptation to succumb to. But listen, listen, this is the message of Jesus. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he has to hate his mother, his brother, his father, his sister, his cousin, his uncle. That was the Tyler Revised Version. And come follow after me. Does Jesus mean that we really need to hate people? No. But he's saying that compared to how much you love me, your love for everything else in this world should seem like hatred compared to how much you love me. God says through Paul, I've counted all things loss, rubbish, manure, is what that Greek word means, manure, or a rotting carcass. That's pretty gross. Paul says, I've counted everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Indeed, I count all things lost. Paul says, not only have I counted all things lost, but I am currently still to this day and always will count all things lost. Compared to the incredible worth of following after Jesus. Listen, family. The world says, be a Christian, but don't go too far. But God says, turn your back on Egypt. Fix your eyes on, on the promise I have for you. The land flowing with milk and honey. Where you'll be my people and I'll be your God. Turn your back on the world and follow after me. Turn your back on everything you once counted as worth anything. Turn your back on success, on fame. Turn your back on good grades. Turn your back on all these things and follow after me. I'm not saying, listen, I'm not saying that a good job or a good education are sinful. I'm not saying that. But remember, if you worship anything other than God, God will give you exactly what you worship. It didn't work out well for the Egyptians, and it's not going to work out well for you either.
The world says be a Christian, but don't go so far. God says, run the race with endurance that is marked out before you. Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is now seated at the right hand of God. God says, run to me. Run away from this world and run straight into my arms. Don't fall to the temptation to compromise with the world and say, okay, I'll be a Christian, but I'm not going to be radical. Be radical. Be nuts. If God calls you to go to Africa, go. Go. If God calls you to pack everything up and, and you feel in your heart, God, I know that you are calling me to pack everything up and move to Michigan. Go to Michigan. Someone was shaking their head no. Apparently Michigan's pretty gross, but whatever. The point is, go where God sends you. Go where God sends you. Do what God tells you to do. No matter how nuts, no matter how radical, no matter how crazy it is, go where God sends you. Turn your back on Egypt and fix your eyes on the promised land. We'll keep reading. Wrap it up. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and he did not let the people go. Family, God, God told Moses, I know their sufferings. I know what they're going through. And so I'm sending you to take my kids out of slavery to Egypt to save them out of bondage for my glory, that they might worship me, that they would be my people and I would be their God. But you remember the people of Israel when Moses first went and asked and told Pharaoh, let my people go. We're out of here, okay? Pharaoh says, I don't know this God that you're talking about. I don't know this Lord. He's not my God, so forget it. In fact, since you have so much time on your hands, I'm going to make your work harder. What did the people do? They despaired. They turned to Moses and they were like, well, what are you doing? What are you th- what's going on? How dare you come in here and make our work harder on us? It was hard enough already. It's only getting harder. We were all stoked when you said you were going to save us, but it's only gotten harder. Moses ran to the Lord and he said, God, what's going on? And God said, don't worry about it. Like I promised, I'm going to take care of it. And I'm going to take care of them. Again, remember, this is all 
about God's glory. God isn't glorified. God is not glorified if he doesn't fulfill his promises. He promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob that they would go into slavery, that they would be freed, and that they would inhabit the land of Canaan, and that their number would be like the dust of the earth. Okay? God would fulfill his promise. The people of Israel, though, they despaired. And this is the first time in a long list of despairing that we're going to see as we read through the book of Leviticus and Numbers, mostly Numbers, we're going to see a whole lot of complaining and a whole lot of grumbling and a whole lot of Israel losing faith and complaining to Moses. Family, understand this. God has called us out of this world into his promised land so that we would be his kids, he would be our God, we'd have a restored relationship with him, but the enemy wants to rip you off. He doesn't want to let you go. He's not going to let you leave this world and leave the cares of this world and leave the pursuits of this world so easily. It's going to be hard. It's not easy to leave Egypt, okay? It's not easy. But rather than the people despairing, Let's be like Moses, trusting. Why? Because he knows your suffering. He knows what you're going through. He knows exactly what you're going through, and he feels your pain. Family, I know it's not easy to turn your back on the world. It's not easy to take your sights off what makes sense to you and what builds you up and what lifts you up and what pleases you and do what pleases God and lifts him up and glorifies and exalts him. It's not easy. It's not easy. But he knows your suffering. And he's promised to pull you through. Trust in him. Trust in him. Like Jesus when he told his disciples, get in the boat, we're going to the other side. They got in the boat, they get halfway through, and a storm arises. And they freak out, and they, they're certain that they're going to die. And they shake Jesus, and they say, don't you even care? We're perishing. And Jesus looks up and says, chill out, in a sense, to the wind and to the waves, and they all stop. And he looks at him, and he says, oh, you of little faith. Jesus never promised to understand that they weren't going to have storms along the way. He just promised. He said, get in the boat. We're going to the other side. Family, yeah, we're going to have storms. We're going to have problems. We're going to have pain. We're going to have difficulties. And the enemy is going to try and rip you off because he doesn't want you to leave the world. He wants you to stay here. He wants you to worship the, the fly God and the gnat God and the frog God. He wants you to worship the the beer God, the skin God, the success God, the money God, the grades God, the pleasing the parents God. He wants you to worship all of these gods instead of him, the enemy does, instead of the real God. And so it's not going to be easy. There are going to be storms. But family, take heart. God has promised that you'll get to the other side. Trust in him. Israel did make it out of Egypt, just like God promised. And just as he's promised you, he will get you out. 
Just trust. Have faith. Yeah, God is definitely working out and orchestrating everything to save this special people, Egypt, or I'm sorry, Israel, for his glory. But he's also calling them to be separate from Egypt, to leave, to get out, to not worship the things that Egypt worships. Because when we worship things other than God, one more time, what does God give us? What we worship. God's calling them out for his glory. Just as family, God is orchestrating everything in life to save you for his glory and calling you out of darkness, out of this world, and into his marvelous light. Don't lose sight of that. Don't forget that. Amen? Father, I pray that that is exactly what you do. That you would fulfill your promise in our lives and that you would save us from this world. And God, I pray that we would truly walk in this freedom. That we would no longer live our lives as if we're slaves to sin, as if we're slaves to this world, that we would no longer live our lives in compromise to this world, that we wouldn't just try and have one foot in you, Jesus, and one foot in Egypt, but that we, we, but that we would turn our backs on this world, daily deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and follow after you, Jesus. That we would lay everything aside. Every sin and every weight that so easily entangles us. And that we'd run with endurance the race that you marked out for us. Leaving the world behind us and fixing our eyes on you, Jesus. That we'd run straight for you. Counting everything that we've ever attained as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing you. And that we would continue to count everything in this world as rubbish, as trash, as junk compared to you. That we would love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. Teach us how foolish it is to worship the gods of this world that never satisfy and point out to us, God, even now in our hearts, what we're worshiping other than you. And that we would stop it, that we would turn from these things, that we would lay down our idols and truly be a people of clean hands and a pure heart that our souls wouldn't be lifted up to these things anymore. That we just love and worship you in spirit and in truth. God, we want to get closer to you. We want to please you. We want to love you. But please teach us how. Teach us to love you, Lord. We pray this in your precious son's name. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you.
May God cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you this week and give you peace.